You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. I'm excited to announce our guest for today. We've got the one and only Ben Lee. In his 30-year music career, Ben Lee has been gloriously prolific and unpredictable. There have been chart hits like Cigarettes Will Kill You, Gamble Everything for Love, We're All in This Together, and Catch My Disease. He says that one has put food on the table more than a few times. An instrumental album as well, which was inspired by the use of psychoactive drugs, and also an album for kids. Uh, ben Lee sings songs about Islam for the whole family. And so as you can imagine, a range of hits. And we're really, really just pleased to have you here with us, Ben. Thank you. Welcome to Inverse Podcast. Ah, thank you so much for having me. Hey, Ben, um, as a way of um, saying thank you and making sure that we don't get um, how you do put food on the table um, out of the way, do you want to talk about your new album that's coming out? That's very exciting. Sure, yeah. Um, I, so I, I've got this record coming out in June called I'm Fun, but it's like with an exclamation mark after the end. So it's like, I'm fun. And uh, <laughs> it's coming out in June. And uh, I, it, <clears throat> I set off to make it. It was right as the pandemic was starting. I was going to get in a room. I, I toured the songs and stuff. and um, But then obviously, you know, plans changed and it became this kind of making a wish list of genius collaborators. Um, and just sending files back and forth. People like John Bryan, who people know mm. from like producing Fiona Apple and Frank Ocean and stuff, and um, Shamir and uh, Sadie Dupuis and all these interesting different people. Um, but it's it's a record all about sort of reassessing what adulthood means and uh, trying to kind of almost like uh, reframe what being eccentric and passionate and like you know what because it's sort of like I look at like I'm 43 now and like whatever my images were of being in my 40s when I was in my 20s um <laughs> is pretty radically different but also due to the times we're living in yeah. um I think the opportunity to stay more connected and connected to culture and community and ideas you know people are becoming less some people are becoming uh, less sort of siphoned off in these just little subcultures and staying part of conversations longer. And I think also our our conversations about um, diversity are including broader representation in age too, mm. um, which is really great because I think you can't have a vital culture dominated by 19-year-olds. It's like they, they should have a voice to, especially in things that are urgent, like political action and climate change and stuff like that. But, but as far as artistic voices, it's just been really important for me to like, you know, I'm interested in kind of edgy shit. It's like, I like, and I like doing it in a pop way, but I don't want to slow down. You know, I'm still like hungry for ideas and experiences. And so anyway, all of that is sort of around, you know, so I put out a single recently called Born for This Bullshit. Um, that's just about the swagger of kind of continuation in every day. And I got another single coming out in a month or two called parents get high. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, you know, that's, that's the gist. <laughs> the, the film clip is pretty amazing uh, for the new single. Um, have you been working out or did you have a stunt body double for that, Ben? Or is that an yeah, unfair question at 43? No, no, that was a, that is an absolute, the, the, the intention was, it was kind of based on Elf Yourself. Do you remember those, those videos? <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> um, so the intention was never that it was meant to be, like my sister, I think is the only one who actually thought that was my body. I kept right. saying like, make the head a little bigger. So it's obviously not my body but yeah it's this genius australian young director called byron spencer who is just great at like visual effects but kind of in like a punk way so yeah i love i love the video yeah that's it's great okay so ben uh one of the things we like to do here at inverse is along with learning what people are up to and hearing some of their story 
Um, we invite our guests to pick a passage to read uh, at the top of our conversation. Do you have a particular uh, biblical passage that you'd like to read for us to start off with? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this when um, Jared sent me the uh, the email, and I, I guess I, you know, obviously it's very tempting to just to pick one of the more mystical or esoteric kind of passages, but I ended up um, just picking actually my bar mitzvah Torah portion. No um, way! Wow. Because it's it's a it's kind of a really fascinating verse and conversation around basically around like social justice and human rights during wartime. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it, it's kind of interesting because it raises both the way religion attempts to grapple with changing social dynamics and moral awakenings, but also reveals to me kind of like the limitations of the struggles that those uh those institutions make because ultimately i mean we can you know as we when we look at it we can chat more about it but it's sort of like it it you sort of just realize how tenuous um <laughs> the entire thing is with it's just such a product of the time yeah. as religion you know gets uh you know created basically so yeah so it's from kitetse which was my torah portion um yeah Hey, Ben, I, I thought it was just you going hard in the Larrikin Lane that you chose. Like, So there's a scholar called um, Phyllis uh, Tibble, and she talks about this as one of the texts of terror. And I, I was like, I wonder if Ben was literally just Googling, like, what would be the most Larrikin kind of text to bring up to kind of, because, I mean, it's a text. Like, it's it's it really is like one of those, Eesh. like, this is a... Um, uh, I was joking with Drew that, um, you know, it's a serious text when I asked myself, what would Will Gaffney do, who's a, a friend of the show and a, um, a, a womanist, uh, a biblical scholar, um, Torah scholar. Um, but that's even more fascinating that it was set for you as your bar mitzvah text. That's yeah, right. I mean, there's right. sort of like, in like a superstitious way, there is some belief in Judaism that whatever your Torah portion is when you're bar mitzvah, like for people who don't know, there's like a cycle of you know, basically 52, whatever, whatever it is, roughly portions, a year long of reading the Bible out. And, um, and when it's your bar mitzvah and it's like to do with your birth, it's almost like your astrology, mm. um, you're assigned the one for that week. And so there is some sense that, um, there should be some, that's my dog sort of sleeping and growling. If you hear that little <laughs> subtle thing, but, um, but, um, there is some belief that there should be some correlation, I guess. And I, I suppose it's something that I've always thought about. Like my daughter, my stepdaughter, her, she's a very kind of esoteric thinker. And her Torah portion was to do with Joseph's dreams. Yeah, and it wow. always seemed like great, you know, like super relevant <laughs> and everything. And, and very like romantic. Like it's like a sexy one, you know. And um and so I've always been a little bit like, wow, this is mine. This is so weird. <laughs> what does this mean, right? <laughs> yeah. What does it say um, about me? Did, did you want us to read that portion um, uh, in English? Or, or at least the first? <laughs> I verse guess so. You, what, are you going to read it in through? Hebrew? <laughs> well, no, I, 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 I'm not going to tell you what I scored in my Hebrew. Um, like, <laughs> I, I can't when remember I was studying it. At seminary. <laughs> um, do you want me to read the section on? Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay. This is one of the passages that it's hard to say this is the word of the Lord afterwards. But here's the text that is uh, Ben Lee's bar mitzvah text, or at least part of it. Uh, when your enemy goes, uh, when you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers you into the hands, uh, uh, into your hands, and takes captives. If you notice amongst the captives a beautiful woman, and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife bring her into your home and have her shave her head trim her nails and put aside the clothes she is wearing when captured after she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month then you may go to her and be her husband and she your wife if you are not pleased with her let her go when she wishes you must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her well friends there's a text there Here you go man cut those nails <laughs> let's take a wife <laughs> oh 
Oh my goodness. Um, we will go there there later. Um, <laughs> then let me ask you, um, what are your early memories of actually encountering? Because I, I know um, uh, um, uh, Hinduism and um, uh, playing at the edges of a lot of um, spiritual movements that haven't been in the main, mainstream in terms of Australian society is where you've spent a lot of time um, in your adult life. But as you mentioned, you had a bar mitzvah. Um, uh, what form of Judaism did you grow up in? And do you have early memories of the um, sacred Hebrew Christian texts? I mean, I, not not the Christian texts, because like growing up Jewish, uh, we saw everything sort of like, like Jesus is sort of seen as like a false Messiah. Mm. So everything, it's almost like, so did you grow up orthodox you know it's like it, not orthodox but just if you're jewish just reform. like yeah i mean we were basically conservative i mean judaism is tricky particularly in australia because mm -hmm. it's probably in america too it's so cultural that yeah. our cultural identification was orthodox but yeah. we would drive to synagogue but park three blocks away so no one saw <laughs> and then walk up you know it's that kind of thing yeah. like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. we wouldn't eat like we wouldn't have two separate like milk and meat dishes uh -huh. we wouldn't do that but we wouldn't have a cheeseburger right where you actually yeah. put the milk and the meat together you know what i mean so it was like all <laughs> these like just arbitrary kind of like yeah just cultural like ways you try and stay connected and keep a culture alive i guess but yeah christianity it's hard for christians i think to understand how jews see christianity like it's almost like how I see um, sort of like some forms of like auto-tune, like on vocals in, um, <laughs> it, it's seen as like, it's seen as like redundant technology. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just updating something that wasn't broken. Um, yeah. But anyway, I developed an appreciation for Christianity uh, later in life. But, but anyway, so, um, so as far as the, primarily there were like the cultural imprints and relationship to like, the Friday night prayers you read before dinner or going to synagogue, but I loved lollies, you know, and when I went to synagogue, <laughs> it's because all the old ladies had lollies to give you, you know, um, can <laughs> candies for the Americans. And particularly when someone had a bar mitzvah, they would, they threw them down at the end from like, like, it's a really, it's funny. Cause it's like super classist. Um, like if you go to like a kind of nice synagogue, cause like who gets the best seats? like in the front row and everything. Cause they're like, right. it's like the opera, like it's like subscription service. Um, <laughs> so, so you'd have, if you got a seat in the front row up the upstairs where my grandmother had a seat, um, you know, she would, you'd have to have a, your handbag would have to be full of lollies in case there was a bar mitzvah um, to throw them down. It's like meant to be like raining, like sweet blessings or something. But yeah, so for me, it was like all this really cultural stuff, but I was not, because I'm drawn to ideas and my parents were really involved in like Labour Party politics and unions and all of that, just like lefty sort of stuff. And so for me, I never could divorce. Like my parents seemed to like actually divorce the concepts from the culture. Like right. they just saw it as like, they're just Jewish, like, but they're not going to like think about God or any, like, what are you talking about? You know, they're like, then they're not going to, they're not going to intermarry. So they're going to produce more Jews and uh, they're going to go to synagogue. And it's like, nice. You know what I mean? You make your yeah. parents proud. Um, but I was never that kind of person. Like I always needed to tear things apart from the inside and just question them and understand them more. So once I got into probably primary school where, cause I went to a Jewish day school mm. where the indoctrination process really begins um, in terms of trying to get you to make that commitment uh, to lead a good Jewish life and bring your grandparents, you know, we call it nachas, you know, just like good sense of pride. Yeah. Um, honor, yeah. yeah. And then to go moves into Zionism and all these kind of things that I was always like, just I wanted to actually engage with them in a way that was meaningful. So I would like debate with the rabbis and, be, you know, like we went on these sort of brainwashing camps um, where you'd go for like five days out to like Stanwell Tops and do abseiling and and talk about like, you know, uh, Jewish concepts. <laughs> and um, 
I other people found them really oppressive, but I saw it as this chance to just like argue with um, you know, kind of frustrated Zionist Orthodox um Sydney Jews in their twenties who were like leading these, you know, things and 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 also but genuinely, like not from a place of opposition, but from a place of like real like the you know, in Judaism, like the there's a real encouragement to struggle and debate. Yeah. So you're like, even though I was often like playing devil's advocate, I was actually, I believe, and I think that the response I got from the counselors and teachers and rabbis and all of that was that I was actually like quite fulfilling my Jewish duty, which was to, you know, wrestle with angels and like struggle mm. with the material. So even though I was sort of adversarial, it was like in good spirit and good humor. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So as you were oriented towards kind of wrestling and grappling with it, in some ways taking it very seriously is kind of what I'm yeah, hearing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so I'm curious, like, how did you, in that process, how were you encountering the Bible? Were you experiencing it as something liberative, as something oppressive, maybe something else? So what was your experience um, encountering these these scriptures? Well, I sort of like did my best to like take it at face value um, and go, okay, this is the word of God and try and understand what that meant and entertain that idea. And then I remember in year seven, sort of like, which is just brilliant because, you know, like probably with the onset of like your first embarrassing erection in a classroom, <laughs> that's exactly when you should be having these types of thoughts. Like maybe Moses was just like schizophrenic. Like why do we believe one person who says they had an experience and then like you build this whole like all this nonsense comes after like generations of buildings and debate and interpretation and like i think what happened was uh i also got into like reading the beats and everything um so reading like you know burroughs and ginsburg yeah. and kerouac and all that and there was a really um particularly in ginsburg mm. um a really um rabbinical dialogue but it was based on lived experience yeah. so what i found in poetry was the desire to actually have mystical experiences of your own yes and then when yeah. i read like keats and blake and all of those kind of things and I, I felt the same i was like oh these people are like me they're people who like like all these ideas but until they taste it themselves they're not going to believe it mm. so pretty much my like mantra from that point forward became, I suppose what you'd call like genuinely agnostic, mm, um, yeah. which was that like, I didn't believe or disbelieve, but I wanted to actually taste. Yes. And, um, and that mm. was sort of really, once that landed for me, it, it sort of has never gone away. But hmm. then you get more into like, as you get older, the interpretation of personal experience mm. and realizing that just because you perceive yourself as having experienced something, does that mean you've experienced it? And also like, what part of you are you experiencing it from? Are you experiencing it from the egoic part of you that wants an experience to be a certain way? or feels good because it reinforces preconceived beliefs beliefs you already had mm. or and then and then and then i started thinking more about how like sorry we're going i'll come back but we're just a little bit of a tangent but then you start kind of thinking about these ideas of um like what does real experiences like psychological insight or mystical experiences like what does it really look like and that's when i really started to like the gnostics um the christian gnostics mm. who um who described all mystical experiences basically traumatizing yeah um and i realized that unless it's traumatizing it's probably not an actual mystical experience like if it feels mm -hmm. good 
it's probably not the real thing because it's not challenging the paradigm <laughs> that you're already living within. So how, unless you are already enlightened, how's it possible? And that's like after psychedelic experiences and stuff, like you often can tell, like there's some people who like, they're like lit up because they saw what they wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And they're like, ah, oh, just, it's love. It's just love, everything. It's just all I have to do is love. And that's true. Of course that's true, but the experience of it doesn't come with any kind of accountability or yeah. need to actually make changes. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's, I sort of realized that like real mystical experiences ask you to step up mm. and ground and be practical and pragmatic and um, so, and, and it's difficult, right? So that that's sort of like, and even the word mystical experiences, like I think is like, it makes it almost seem too romantic, but just like mm -hmm. periods of insight, like flashes of insight where you kind of get perspective and go, huh, I guess I'm not exactly going in the right direction. Mm. You know, it can be really simple. I try and keep it simple, especially as a parent, because otherwise you end up like just fucking up your kids. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> so Ben, this is one of the things I find so fascinating. I do about... like all the people who are using screenshots of themselves smiling. Cause I keep, if I say anything funny, I look at them. I'm like, oh, that landed. That's affirming. Well. And I realize That's... I'm looking at a frozen <laughs> screenshot. Yeah. I'm seeing a whole family smiling. So I'm like, wow, that really, That's... that was cross-generational materials. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of cross-generational, um, uh, your music's been listened to and and loved by so many generations now. Um, I mean, uh, recently you're on TV here in Australia with a whole new generation um, uh, being exposed to your greatness that some of us just grew up with. Like you were always, I, I remember like watching Dylan Lewis, like the recovery and that, that was your Bible for what was cool when I was in high school. And um, you looked younger than me, even though you're older than me, when you were playing on there, like looking back at those clips, it was amazing. But so many people who have been um, in the game, like, or at least with the, you know, um, the psychological pressures of being in the public eye for as long as you have, um, aren't as grounded, um, aren't as funny. Um, there's something, as you were describing that, I was thinking, um, Jacob going back and telling others about wrestling with an angel. And I don't think his words would be, it's all love. It's all love. It, like there's a wound that happens that makes you limp the rest of your life with these kind of um, encounters or experiences. And I know the language of whether it's encounters or experience or mysticism could somehow be limited because it leaves it like it's an idea instead of like an opening or, um, but I, I'm interested, like, uh, with your journey going the way it has and with so much of your music inviting us into that, which is another aspect of your um, like uh, creative discipline that you've actually been incredibly gen generous in like inviting us into those most like intimate parts of your own journey and um, have really risked a lot as well in inviting us into that same kind of vulnerable, like I'm even thinking in terms of um, we're all in this together and the fact that it was released so much earlier when it wasn't nearly as cool or it wasn't in the air in the same way. And here's this moment where your music, it, what, it's at least a decade after oh, the initial already, release, right? That's getting close to 20 years ago. Wow. And yeah. here it is like in the air again, because you, you've tapped into something which um, uh, is so archetypal and universal and required a vulnerability of you where this kind of like um, uh, uh, fandom catch-all of ideas is going is towards a question that asks around your own experiences and when you return to these texts now as an adult and you're talking about being a parent um, when it comes to sacred texts um, uh, generally what experiences for you mean that you're now looking at them um, in ways that are actually generative or life-giving for others as well like what for those who are kind of going I'm interested in in spirituality or I've grown up in a particular tradition uh, I'm seeking to engage the texts in in ways that are life-giving what kind of invitation would you offer them well I, I kind of firstly thank you for everything you just said um I think, you know, look, I'm essentially like a punk, you know, like I, 
I believe in burning things down. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like I'm much more of the, like, have you seen Hearts of Darkness? You know, the Coppola doco about um, making of Apocalypse Now? No, never. Uh, oh, it's fantastic. It's made by his yeah, wow. wife. Okay. Um, it, it, anyway, there's an amazing scene in it where he's arguing, Coppola's arguing with Dennis Hopper. Because huh. um, Dennis Hopper's like just wild, like on drugs, doing all kinds. Of, and they have this argument about, um, basically about improvisation. And um, Dennis Hopper says, I don't want to learn the lines. I want to forget the lines. I want to be present in the moment. And Coppola says, yeah, but first you have to learn the lines and then forget them. And wow. I'm a little bit like that with, I think, all of this stuff around like organized thought and um, spiritual traditions and sacred texts and all of that. Like I actually, I think they can sort of only take you so far. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't think, I sort of don't think they're the answer. I don't think sitting and like, I'm not of that school of thought of like, pick a Bible verse every day and open it and meditate on it. And like, it's fine. I mean, you can do that if you want, but I think like all organized religion and all sacred texts, it like sort of like scratches the surface of um, direct lived experience as a human being. And it, it actually really like spirituality exists in our relationships. It exists in our communities, in our, understanding of how we take care of the planet how we take care of each other Mm. how we how we face breaches of our own integrity um and the ways we try and get that back on track you know um but 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 at the same time i'm like a big fan of like just like you know stand on the shoulders of giants like read what others have said so that you can understand like for me as a musician I know that when I put out a new album, it's with knowledge of where it stands in the history of pop culture. And Mm -hmm. that's not to say, hey, I'm always breaking new ground and I'm the cutting edge or whatever, but I want to understand what I'm referencing. And I want to know that like, if I'm adding a thread to the tapestry, just what the tapestry is, like what's the history Mm -hmm. of it. And I think you Mm -hmm. really see with musicians there's something beautiful when they don't have that too, because mm. when you're 19 and just out to like impress girls and you just do it, <laughs> it's like you also tap something pure there. But in terms yeah. of like that, that goes without saying, like the beauty of the innocence of, that's like the lamb kind of thing, right? Mm. Um, that like, it's so beautiful, mm. but to me more beautiful is the re-encounter with innocence. Um, maybe I have to think that because that's the only option I have at this point. Um, <laughs> well, but, it's a bit like, like as yeah. you're saying it, Ben, I'm thinking about like um, London Calling. Like uh, for, for some people are like, uh, it, it wasn't punk enough. And it's just, well, the Clash learned to play their instruments after a while, right? Like um, if, if you have a practice that you continue to return to, um, it, you start to become in dialogue with those who have also been part of the practice. And um, after a while to, to leave it in that place where it's um, raw becomes inauthentic because it's, it's not, it's actually been cooking for a while. Yeah. And you also like, you know, it also becomes inauthentic if, you know, I know a lot of people who are like quote machines Mm. who like can quote spiritual texts and, idioms and back and forth for hours and i actually find that numbing like Mm. when i listen to it i'm like i'm not hearing like lived wisdom i'm just hearing the books you've read and i especially think that post iphone that type of dialogue is like being revealed for what it is which Mm. is like memorization work and we've all got computers in our pockets and memorizing quotes it's like, what does that really mean? Like mm-hmm. I can look up, I'll do 50 great spiritual quotes and I'll read them to you. And it's, it, it doesn't, I just don't think it, I think it used to, it's like a magic trick mm-hmm. that used to appear more oppress- impressive than it does now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I think like a lot of reading is like 
great because it like it's like being a student like it exercises the muscles and you learn how to tear texts apart and you also learn like subtly beautiful things like like this text which we'll we'll talk about it presents problems of the time and an attempt to actually solve them because part of what you like I think Judaism is a lot like this, but I think all religions probably are. Is there a response to the hypocrisy and the violence of an era? Hmm. And when you talk about, say, treatment of prisoners of war, it's like, hey, we're not yet at a moment in history where you can actually question war, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Or question taking prisoners of war. But hmm. you have an attempt by rabbis to go, well, is there a way to do it that's more fair or more humane? It's a bit like, um, Temple Grandin coming up with those uh, slaughterhouses where the animals couldn't see the one in front of them being killed, uh-huh. right? And because she was an empath and autistic, um, she w- was a hugely compassionate person who um, was in acceptance of the violence of the world. And she was like, well, what small contribution can I make? And I think something like in this verse is really interesting because it's sort of minutiae and it's outdated minutiae too. Yet you sense in it how important it is to have the conversation of basically, can we build a better mousetrap in the form of humanity? <laughs> wow. Wow. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that, you, I, my mind wants to go in five different places. Um, sorry, cause... that's my mind. I'm sorry yeah. if I'm doing no, that no, too. No, no, that, no, that's good. That's good. That's <laughs> I think good. That's that's good. A, this is a support group for people who are white okay, like okay, us. So white okay. like that. Right, right, right. Because half of me is like, if the, when you were talking earlier, I was like, I was thinking of like um, training wheels, right? Um, when you're talking about traditions um, and just, you know, they can only take you so long, but then after a while you got to ride, right? And just mm-hmm. this kind of, um, what does it mean to go deeper? But you're inviting us to think about, you know, how do we not be entrapped by just the kind of religiosity um, that we just initially can see as, you know, I, I do think that there's a way. I mean, I certainly, when I was young, you know, if someone could just quote Bible verses, I'm like, well, this is clearly a deeply spiritual person. Totally. Um, right? Totally. Yeah. Inspirational. All right, that's yeah. the, that's the the model to to follow yeah. after. But but how do we move beyond just internalizing banking and um, what does it mean to live fully and freely in open ways that uh, we can actually um, have? I'll say a, I don't know if this is the best way, but spiritual encounters in relationships in our journey, in our growth, in our dialogue, in our wrestlings, right, in our questions that we pursue. Um, but Drew, but, uh, yeah. I thought it was Ben just calling me out because, uh, as we know, it's it's not just Bible verses, right? But like if you if you throw in a, a bit of Slavoj Žižek and um, yeah, right, then right, right, follow right, it up right. with Rumi, and right, uh, if right. you can name drop some some Foucault and then talk about Meister Eckhart, and I'm like, damn, Ben's just like nailing me here. He's he's just like, here we go, Jared. Like, um, well, except but- that except that those things also do have value. Like, I don't ever want to like. <laughs> Like that's the, that's the irony of it. But, but I think for me, where this whole thing is based on is more in line with Eastern thought, which is that the truth is unknowable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really do believe that. And that, yeah. you know, I, the path diverges from yeah. a lot of people in terms of like when they talk about past lives and what happens after you die and exactly the way karma works and are there ghosts? And, you know, like, like there's a lot of people who claim they know a lot of things and I don't believe them mm-hmm. basically, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I don't think they know what they say they know. And yeah. cause I've been in that place and I know that I, at times desperately wanted to know and even mm-hmm. believed I did know, but it's not the same with the same certainty that I can say this coffee mug is sitting in front of me. It's just not, you can't yeah. really know. So, so from that perspective, it's like trusting that the truth is in a sense unknowable on then we're all on equal footing. 
than the idea of putting someone above me and quoting them as knowing the exact truth. Like there are things I believe Andy Warhol or Bob Dylan, who are two like Mm. artists, there are things they said that makes me feel that they understood things about art and like had a commitment to vision in a way that my vision is still evolving. And I could see certain artists who came out like fully formed, yet I don't actually believe they know more inherently about the nature of reality of the universe than I do. Mm. And I can't put them on a pedestal for that. So, so that's where the quoting things, it's more about the energy you come at it with. Like, are you using it to make it seem like you know something or that they knew something yeah yeah or is it kind of like hey do you want to like play around with a riddle together yeah 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 Yeah. it's fun exclamation mark exactly right (laughs) and then i mean um like it talking it's fun part of the thing for drew and i with the inverse podcast is like we just get to talk to people that we'd love to you know when people ask who would you love to go to dinner with i mean we're having a conversation with ben lee but i'm honestly really surprised at um uh how impressed i am with like the the way you approach like when you're talking about like um gnosticism uh versus gnostic mysticism and like in in our tradition the apophatic tradition or the tradition of unknowing or the that's what i was thinking uh, of right right true like it's uh, um uh, inherent to christianity is that there are no secrets that this is open (laughs) like it's it's looking at the life of like um uh this poor palestinian jew who chose a towel of service rather than a a sword of violence to conquer and there's um, that's the mystery, and it's um, no more accessible to to one than it is to another. And so there is this like radical leveling where the first is last and the last is first, and everybody gets in. Um, and the uh, what it is to enter the darkness and realize it is just darkness, but it does dazzle, is a very different journey to um, how do I unlock the secret thing. And so that kind of makes me, I know we haven't pivoted to the text yet, Drew, um, but like those kind of dynamics, um, I wonder if some of the susceptibility in religious or spiritual circles to conspiracy theories is the secret unlocking kind of um, uh, Gnosticism of um, I've worked out the conspiracy of all things versus there's no conspiracy. In fact, the principalities and powers make their agendas pretty plain if we actually like wake up and see. Um, I don't know, Drew, whether you want to go to the text first or, but at some, I'm just flagging Ben, that I'd love to come back to the whole um, um, conspiracy and spirituality thing. Cause I know that your voice and your gracious voice, um, particularly how you responded to um, Guy Sebastian um, has been really, it's cut through in Australia. Drew, do you know any about that? No, I don't. Ben, do you want to sketch a little bit of that before we pivot to the text? Yeah, I mean, this was really just about um, vaccine messaging um, mm. inherently. Mm. Um, I'm someone who I don't, I'm not, what do you call it, epidemiologist, and I don't, uh, <laughs> I, I, I make no claims of being an expert in explaining the mechanics of how vaccination works, yet I know when I'm working on a project leadership is important Mm. and um you pick the best qualified person to do it you know and it's with full understanding that there may be mistakes you may crash the bus anyway um but someone's got to drive the thing you know and so for me as i just watched the pandemic play out i just went i'm just gonna go like my wife has a cousin who's a nurse I have a good friend, a musician, Georgia Mack, who's a nurse, and they're both like really, and then we have a doctor. And I talked to all those people and they're all very no drama, just like, yeah, the way out of this is vaccination. And it's just sort of like, seemed like they, they seem so far of the people I've sort of heard, the best people to be driving the bus, like health, healthcare professionals, you know? So, so I just look at it in terms of that. I was like, look, 
I don't know if vaccination is going to lead to me growing a second head out of the here that that once it just looks like Bill Gates or something like that. But but I do know that someone's got to be in charge. I'm prepared to let doctors and scientists do that. So anyway, that's just background on where I stand with vaccination. Um, so when the music industry came out and we, we we're we're a sector in Australia that actually didn't really receive, considering how much we contribute to the economy, um, we didn't really receive the same look-in that some other industries like uh, yeah. sports may have yeah. received. Um, and uh, and there are all kinds of reasons for that to do with lobbying and, you know, anyway. Um, but the, the, the live music sector really just, you know, it's not just musicians. There's like, you know, caterers and sound and light people and clubs yeah. and ticketing there's it's just a whole industry that was sort of leveled so we just as an industry came together and like let's make a push for people to get vax so that we can have live music back that's how it's going to work right we already saw it happening in other countries and all the how do i don't want this to be a piling on any particular artist but the some with some people when we all had some content to share some fan bases there was pushback um and particularly if those artists had ties to religious groups um because there's a lot of suspicion of vaccination in you know church communities basically so um so i my comment on it was that i think it's a bit of a live by the sword die by the sword thing if you are an artist who goes down the line trying to communicate to the middle all the time it's going to be very hard to have um to take a stand and i think we one of the yep. people i've been very interested in watching is taylor swift in mm -hmm. the last five years who evolved from being completely apolitical if coming from country music which is like you'd say probably 90 percent republican voting audiences kind of her fan base expanded. She was more in the pop world. She was obviously being exposed, meeting different people, gay people, you know, like just thinking differently. And she just realized her conscience wouldn't let her sleep at night if she didn't speak up. You know, this was mm. a, with Trump. Um, so so I, I totally recognize the journey that it is, but it's a journey that has a lot to do with capitalism and that you basically can't upset your demographic and it puts an artist in a very difficult position it's easy for me to say as an outsider as an upsetter like i've always said what i want so i've allowed that's my brand so in a way if i didn't do that that would alienate my audience right, <laughs> um, right. but but so basically there just became a, a disagreement between me and another artist about that and, and i thought that part of what the church has done that's dangerous is the framing of vaccination around as a personal choice issue yeah and i think yeah, that yeah. sounds compassionate but mm. it really isn't like yeah. when you're building a house and you have to do the plumbing and the sewage it's not a personal choice issue there's code <laughs> there's building code for yeah. all of our safety yeah. right it's, so it's about loving your neighbors it's yeah. loving your neighbors exactly when someone <laughs> dies in your house you're allowed to have them there, I think, for 24 hours or whatever it is. But then there's rules about how we handle public health. And mm. I just saw it as much more in that than in the like personal choice issue. Like like cannabis, I would say, is like a personal choice issue. I yeah. never think that should be use should be mandated. <laughs> I think that would be very strange. <laughs> That's a personal choice issue. Things that directly affect public health are not personal choice issues. They're decisions we make as a community. So that's really what that was about, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's, and it's not surprising. I mean, I always, um, you know, I, so I, I teach at a Christian college where a large percentage of my student body um, are conservative evangelicals here in the US. And, and as you can imagine, um, you know, they're all raised in the context where, you know, the book of Revelation is seen as like the Da Vinci Code chase, right? Like they're constantly <laughs> trying to like unlock the, the secrets of the universe and the timing of, of the world's dooms. Um, and so I, I do think there there is a deep danger in how, number one, the fact that that exists, number one, but then also then how it gets co-opted into 
like you almost trained for conspiracies mm. in in some church circles um which i think is really dangerous and then then you add it to really just what seems to be bad takes right when when it has to do with the well-being of others then all of a sudden personal choice when like jared said like how can this not be a love your neighbor like moment right and so i do think yeah there's there's something there that i we haven't grappled with we haven't stared in the mirror long enough we haven't done the kind of self-examination to see the ugliness of how this impacts not just our own faith but literally our societies right um and I, and we could look the same thing that's playing out right now i mean I always say, like, if, you know, certain forms of mangled and diseased Christianity didn't exist in the U.S., we could have health care. We could, That's right. you know, there'd That's be right. less disparities. We could have brought some healing to the racial injustices that we've just been plagued with for centuries. Like, it's literally Christianity yes. Often yeah. um, at the center of reproducing so many of these these realities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I think one of the things that's unfortunate about religion, and maybe this ties back to what we were talking about before, with the way psychedelic experiences, like people use them to reinforce a viewpoint they already have, mm. is how little like actually problem solving debate is being had. It's mm -hmm. all just debate to prove the other person wrong. Yeah. Um, and I had a woman reach out to me on Twitter. She was really nice. She was um, a Christian woman. And she said she's been really disturbed by the way um, the anti-vax movement has sort of co-opted her church-going community. Wow. And she said, um, she said, I just don't get it. Like the way I see it is like, I believe in God and why wouldn't God give us both the tools by which to find solutions and, and the mental tools to be able to create the solutions to problems that are in hmm. the world? And to her, it felt very simple. And I thought that was quite an elegant uh, yeah. logic. Um, but she didn't have any room to express that within her community. And so hmm. you basically just saw like an unwillingness to have dialogue yeah. um, about you know like i think that whole like the real like philosophical debates like when you look back at like the socratic dialogues and plato yeah, and yeah, all of that yeah, and like just yeah. like tear it apart from every angle and because yeah. i look at that in terms of like art and commerce even like yeah <laughs> i believe that at the end of the battle with between the artist and the corporation um there you will find if you work within um a pop culture format like if you look if you're trying to write um you know if you're trying to write like atonal experimental music that has no place in popular culture then it's a different thing but if you're trying to work within <laughs> pop culture i sort of believe that the the compromise or the refined concepts that you reach at the end of struggle are actually going to be like more elegant solutions than the ones you came to initially. Yeah. yeah um, and I appreciate that pushback that yeah. ideas get because that's how you find holes in your logic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So well put. That's good. Well, Ben, uh, on that note, uh, can you lead us into some dialogue? Let's dialogue around the passage that you pick. Let's let's yeah. wrestle with it and see what comes out on the other side. Yeah. Well, the the, the biggest thing for me, because I remember one of the first things was like I had this bar mitzvah teacher, and um, his you know I'd go visit him once a week, and he would tell me about you know the, teach me the pronunciation, the singing, everything. But the first thing he said was that this is actually one of the um, essentially like prototypical Jewish feminist passages because before this um, women were seen as prizes in like the spoils of war mm. with no feelings and you won the war if you killed a husband you took the wife right and so what this whole thing is is like almost like the first almost like Geneva Convention mm -hmm. 
it's saying like what are the basis of like human rights within a wartime situation and um so look that's one of those things that's so complicated because we can justify things like so much too you know what i mean like that Mm. framework allows you to kind of it makes some sort of palatable like oh but it is still talking about women as property um and but it's interesting like i found um this concept is really interesting that if you take a, a woman captive in war you're allowed to marry her but you have to give her a month to grieve which is and you're not allowed to have sex with her um you have to do go as she wishes and she's not just a she's not just property you can't sell her and it reminded me of um when i went up to the gama festival in arnhem land and mm. they would have um the women would get together i think at dawn and they would grieve together mm. um and it wasn't always a direct uh you know member of the direct biological family it was like community grieving that the women did and how um grief is so like unrecognized in our culture um and the role that grieving plays like i'm seeing now like you know melbourne's lockdown lifting last night um and one of my favorite things just scrolling through the internet i have so many friends in melbourne and um, I'll just show you something I saw on Instagram last night. This is my friend, um, a musician in Melbourne called Sophie Ko. Hmm. And she said, um, she did this post and she said, she's playing piano. And she said, any Melburnians feeling a bit strange about tomorrow? Sadness, excitement, apprehension, doom, happiness, fatigue? Lots of fatigue, uneasiness, anxiousness, hope, dread, anticipation, suspense, excitement again, a little moonlight sonata to calm the cocktail of a conflicted head. And I thought it was so beautiful because so many people were like basically talking about um, getting on the beers, you know, and just heading to the pub. And um, what she's talking about is she's a mum. You know, she's had little kids. They've been through a very difficult couple of years. And there's grief. There's grief to reckon with before the celebration or maybe in the midst of it. Mm. And there's something about that. What I appreciate about this Bible verse is the um, is the recognition of the complexity of one's emotional life, which is not mm. something you find a lot in the Old Testament. Mm. you know <laughs> yeah i mean that that's really it's interesting you know so when i when jared shared what passage it was going to be you know my first i'm like oh this is it's a text of terror right that's how that was my yeah. and yet you bring us into see um the complexity that even in the midst of what we would say is archaic ways that we would not in 21st century approve of you know the overall framework there is this really beautiful moment where we see that it's recognizing the full humanity of these women and giving space, recognizing uh, in the midst of radical uh, life being paradigmatically shifted, undone, right? Worlds undone. Um, there's need for grief. There's need for lament um, mm. for the full human experience. And so, yeah, that's that's actually quite uh quite deep well and also like you know i don't think we should be too generous it doesn't give i don't think i don't think it allows women a full experience yeah, yeah, not full right. <laughs> they are still right. they That's are still prisoners right. being taken right um, yeah. and i think part of yeah. when we look at things like this we do have to go you know what they're still fucked up yeah like, that's still not right. So. right it's not right but what you can see in there is the attempt there's like an attempt to, there's conscience. Conscience is plaguing people. Yeah. And it's going, what we're doing, this is not, it, it, there's gotta be a better way. Yeah. And I think that is sort of what I appreciate about it. It's getting into the weeds. Yeah. And history isn't necessarily looking, like it's funny. Like we, we're, 
someone said the other day, oh, because there's this Woodstock 99 documentary um, on HBO about this festival that, you know, it's like a chaotic festival. And there's a moment where I think DMX comes out and he's like using the N word because it's in his song. And then the audience is singing it back. And I was talking to some younger people, like my, someone babysitting my daughter who's 19. And she was like, can you believe it? I was like, yeah, but like in the 90s, we as white people who liked rap music and were going to concerts, we thought we were allies doing that. That was not all frat boys. Like mm. I went to see Jay-Z and Kanye a decade ago, whatever that big tour was. And I'm sure I was yelling out the N word. They were telling me to, and I was like, all right, this is, I'm the audience. This is my job. This is what I'm meant to do. And now in retrospect, I'm like, holy shit, man, that was inappropriate with the lens of 2021 of everything I've learned in the last few years about, you know, racial dynamics and everything. I couldn't see how, why I should have sat that one out. That was not my moment for audience participation. But the point is kind of like, we have to recognize that we're continuing to evolve as a society yeah. and it's clumsy, man, it's mm -hmm. really clumsy. And you look back at your best attempt, like, look, I covered, um, you know, one of the things that like pains me about something I did was I thought, and I did this with um, Yoko Ono's blessing. I covered that, you know, woman is the uh, N word of the world, that song, because I actually saw that at the time as an anti-racist feminist comment mm -hmm. made by an Asian woman. Like it was, it was playing with taboo, but it was, I, from my perspective at the time, that seemed like a progressive, choice of an ally. And I look back and I'm just like mortified. And I'm like, mm. I wasn't able to perceive that even that word coming off the tongue of particularly a white male is like, I couldn't recognize the privilege that that choice came with. Um, so my whole point is like, you know, we're living in this time where there's like a lot more accountability than there's ever been yeah. for these types of things. But with that, there has to come the recognition that we're on a continuum and mm. yesterday's choices are always going to look ugly if we're doing yeah. any good. <laughs> like, yeah. If yesterday's choices look good to us, we haven't evolved. Wow. Yeah, Ben, I think that's an amazing metaphor. And, and um, again, to go back to like, you've just been in the public for forever. So, I mean, we've all got, stories that are parallel maybe not around those particular issues but some other issues that uh, are parallel that um uh if we think about that moment and think about the the journey we're on and what i love about the illustration you've given is there's something um how it illustrates the actual text is it shows that the intention was actually the opposite but the application completely failed and I mean, for me, one of the like um, um, evidences of like um, a, a divine hand in the scriptures is all the stuff that's left in there. Like th this isn't propaganda because like it's all the bad stuff. It's all the stuff that you would edit out of your family history. It's all the stuff that you would hope no one finds out about your own personal story. It's all the stuff that like you're it's it's shadow stuff it's it's the work of what we want others to see and there's something about but is that is that can i just ask a question is that with your 2021 eyes or you believe that's baked in i think it's baked in like i mean even um uh, to go back to you know that archetypal um uh story in the hebrew bible that um israel gets its name uh, the one who wrestles i think the wrestle is baked in. Uh, I think um, th that's why you have texts at one point that say um, uh, what David did here is of God and elsewhere it's like this was of the devil. Satan, um, right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> this is the same text so claiming that like <laughs> the opposite of, of these actions and they're held together. It's why the, the prophet and the priests um, are, uh, attention that are held and both are included, both aren't edited out um and I, I with texts like this and let's name it like when you sent me through that text I, I felt the hot rush and slight sweat and panic 
of, oh my goodness, we're going to do with the text of terror. Do we need to do like a content warning on it? Right, and right. so I, I ran a, like phoned a friend, right? And so um, uh, Dr. Will Gaffney, I was like, Will, what I, and she would kindly sent some stuff through where she names it as, um, this is a rape marriage text. And um, uh, Mark Brett, who's a um, uh, you know Hebrew Bible um, scholar, um, he was like, I-, I would go to Eckhart Otto, and what you so brilliantly illustrated confessionally in your own life, and that's why I think, um, it, it, you know, that <laughs> to quote Brian Houston, I've never done that on the podcast before, but the best is yet to come. Like th- this is. Um, it, your music and your art continues to sweeten and deepen like an aged wine because you continue to do the journey like you you continue to go there and when so many people are seeking to cover up you don't have that luxury because you, you've given of yourself in public um knowingly or unknowingly um your whole journey and so for, for so many of us you're an archetype of okay what do i do with all my stuff that's out there that I don't want people to, to know. And um, these texts are like that as well. And Mark Otto, um, sorry, Eckhart Otto um, talks about how initially we might see this text as um, uh, being incredibly unjust because it is talking about a horrific wartime um, practice that is now a war crime. But contextualizing it in antiquity, we can see that there was. Uh, an inkling, an intention, a leaning in a direction um, of something that was redemptive instead of something that was, um, and so the, the scales um, of injustice might not be as tipped in the directions um, of the horrific as we thought it was initially, but we also just need to name straight out that this is horrific. This is a text of terror. Um, for those of us who are survivors, this is something that not only is triggering, but it's completely okay for some people's journey to go, no, I'm not saying amen at the end of that. No, I'm not saying this is the word of the Lord. No, I'm not, I'm not going there. Um, and that's part of the tension that I think has to be held with these texts. Well, they're like carbon caps. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> at, like at the end of the day, we should not be using fossil fuels. Yeah. But here we are. <laughs> so yeah. we gotta have like, we gotta gradually improve. Mm. And um, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's embarrassing, I think, um, to look at where we've been as a civilization. Mm. Um, it's embarrassing to look at our treatment of the planet and of each other and of indigenous cultures. And like, it's just like, it's humiliating, but not one of us has, is free of some degree of like participation in it. Yeah. And we can collectively, I mean, I got really inspired just to change tack for a minute. I listened to a podcast the other day where there was this interview with this guy called, um, I think St. Andrew or something. And he, he's, he's a big proponent of this thing called solar punk. Have you heard about hmm. it? Uh-uh. Um, here, I'm going to drop, I'll drop a thing in the chat. Um, hang on. I'll try not to get it to play. Um, yeah, and fantastic. it's basically, it's like an anarchist, uh, environmental anarchist, uh, offshoot but it's a non-dystopian futuristic environmental movement um and it's basically about um i forget there's a great quote here hang on one second solar punk is an art movement that envisions how the future might look if humanity succeeds in solving major contemporary challenges with an emphasis on sustainability problems such as climate change and pollution. Um, and it's it's tech, it's involved in, it's basically about changing our story of, like what, what this guy was talking about was that apocalyptic narratives have been part of our consciousness since long before climate change. Mm. Like we actually as a society have an addiction to apocalyptic narratives. Mm-hmm. Mm. And how can we re-envision our future and envision healing if we're still fully locked into these apocalyptic narratives and, um, and that we kind of need to reframe the way we think about what a future of humanity can look like. And so all of this, it's like, we're part of this, like I was talking to someone yesterday about music and how like, I genuinely don't think music 
uh, it's not like it's not going to save the world, but mm-hmm. it can create atmospheres in which we're individuals and groups are more likely to be engaged in problem solving thoughts and behaviors than other atmospheres. Right. So what I try and do is I try and like, like with my song, the single born for this bullshit, what I want to do is I want people to get up out of bed and go, you know, that issue, I've got a little more courage to deal with it today. Mm. And then that's about the limit of what I can do, right? I can go mm-hmm. like, here's a little shot of courage. Here's a little shot of inspiration, a shot of clumsiness. That's just about like, let's do it. And I yeah. think um, that is in a way, probably the best thread I can add to the tapestry of where are we going culturally? It's me going like, hey, I'm, I'm still feeling brave. I'm still up yeah. for going further. You guys want to do it? And then see where it goes. Yeah. And the track does that, Ben. Like like so many of, um, there is a punkness to your optimism that has been present in um, uh, even while lamenting there, there is a a sense of naming what is actually there instead of covering it up. And the way that you have been punk with pop music for so long, like continuing to subvert um, when so many uh, would go, no, the, the problem is the form itself. And you're like, no, you're not having enough fun. Like you got to play with the form. You got to mess with it. And you continue to do that. And um, it's exciting to watch and it's inspiring. And know that that song for so many already has that sense of like, um, Ben's going to name what we're living through in this moment really clearly. It's BS. And yet there's a radical affirmation of... Um, <laughs> you know engagement time is this. engagement yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah 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 that's incredible yeah well that's i think look that the the as someone that like truly doesn't have any answers <laughs> because i don't and i don't think any of us do um i do think that uh to use a uh a, a, a word from my own um culture um chutzpah chutzpah is is really like sort of my superpower um and that my willingness to engage um is what i can offer um and i do think that when you act boldly and courageously even clumsily you give people permission to do the same and we should all be doing that for each other you know Mm. it's something we can do yeah so good ben you've been so generous with your time and if you're willing um there's people who've joined us live who i'm sure have questions uh where can people uh find your stuff for those who are listening along now um and going oh my goodness like how have i not um listen to ben lee for a while where's the easiest place to land i mean i'm i'm on all my socials at ben lee music um i've been enjoying tiktok lately that's been really fun and trying to be subversive (laughs) and you know try and like mess around a bit in there um but then i'm you know streaming go to your favorite streaming service i am ben lee the uh the singer songwriter not the uh there's a violin player in england who currently holds the record for the fastest performance of flight of the bumblebee on the violin that's not me (laughs) Um, i'm the guy with words in his songs yeah the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse 